I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. We'll look today at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. As I introduce this new series, Empowered by the Holy Spirit, I preached through the book of Acts. Uh, Over 20 years ago, I started uh, here in this church and preached all the way through the book in a series of messages that was 44 messages long. Not sure how long this series will take us. Uh, we'll have normal breaks like we do for seasonal emphases or other things that I feel like we need to focus on for that particular week. And otherwise, we're going to be in Acts for a while as we study God's Word and uh, what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Kenneth Boa compared a soaring eagle to Christians learning to soar through the power of the Holy Spirit. I like the illustration that he gives, and I begin with what he wrote here. God seems to like eagles. 33 Bible verses mention them. Eagles are true flying birds, meaning they get off the ground by flapping, but they soar by thermals. Eagles begin flight training around four months old. But even before that, at about two months, they stand up in the nest and spread their wings when they feel gusts of wind. They're training to know the thermals. Thermals are the columns of air formed as heat rises from the ground. Because heat rises, these air columns push up and up, displacing the cold air around them. By staying in the warmth of the thermal, the birds continue to soar, and eagles become experts in this. It is this magnificent aerodynamic dynamic action in which gravity isn't deactivated, It still works, but the higher principle overcomes gravity. Eagles drop down when they step off of a branch. Then they start flapping like crazy, and once they're in the air, their wings don't have to work very hard at all. And while soaring, they use a fraction of the effort that was required to rise. They're almost at rest and can just enjoy the pleasures of flight. When we first begin following Christ, Boa then makes the parallel or even practicing a new spiritual discipline. We're like eagles who are spreading our wings to fly. Maybe after a few tries, we're back down on the ground, but through repeated practice, we finally soar. In the Greek, the Holy Spirit is called pneuma, which means in part, current of air. Think about what that means for us. We might flap and flap, but we catch the current of the air and then we soar. This is how the Holy Spirit works in our training. He's not only our coach, he's the power behind everything that we do. The Holy Spirit indwells us and seals us when we are saved. He empowers us for the work that God has called us to. He guides us along the way, gives us wisdom on decisions that we need to make. He serves as our counselor, our comforter, and more. I think the big idea of the book of Acts is this. The Holy Spirit empowers believers and churches to live for the glory of God, to share the good news about Jesus, and to advance the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit empowers believers and churches to live for the glory of God, to share the good news about Jesus, and to advance the kingdom of God. Let me give you a little bit of background on Acts. It's referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. 
It's actually the Acts of the Apostles as empowered by the Holy Spirit. The title was probably added somewhere around the second century. Acts comes from the Greek word praxis, and it's a word that was used in those days to describe the great deeds of the faith, the great deeds of the apostles. When we think about praxis today, we're thinking about practice over theory, but it's action, it's motion, something is happening. And in Acts, a lot is happening because we find the birth of the New Testament church, we find the spread of the gospel, we find significant persecution and opposition to the gospel, and yet God is doing some of his greatest work through that. Luke is the author of the work, and it makes a clear progression from the gospel of Luke where he leaves off, and admittedly his name is not mentioned, but he's always historically been accepted as the author of Acts. Luke, the physician, was first a follower of the apostles, and then he became close with Paul. He's the only Gentile writer in the New Testament, and in early writing, dated between 160 and 180 AD, tells us that Luke may have been a Syrian from Antioch. Uh, he was known to be a single man who accompanied Paul all the way t- until his martyrdom. And according to that tradition, which is extra biblical, we don't know for sure, uh, Luke himself died at the age of 84. Acts begins with an emphasis on Peter, it ends with an emphasis on Paul. And there's a large section of the book that is dedicated to the three primary missionary journeys of Paul. And Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome, awaiting his appeal to the Caesar. But there's not any mention of his death that would have happened somewhere in the middle 60s or persecution under Nero, which was roughly the same time frame. So he probably finished writing Acts before those events took place and while the Apostle Paul was still sitting in prison. The church is beginning to grow during that time period. It spreads through the Roman Empire. They're focused on the gospel. They're dependent on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And God is working in a powerful way. There's also a worship transition. The worship transition is that the worship transition from uh, worship in the temple uh, to the acceptance of Gentile believers in the Jewish church, even though that was not without problems as the groups came together. And then finally, predominantly, Gentile churches are spread all over the Roman Empire, and the work of the gospel in the kingdom is advancing. Now, I think at the risk of oversimplification, that we can divide the book into two main sections. The first is the ministry and the mission of Peter in Jerusalem and then in in Samaria in chapters 1 through 12. We might refer to this as a primarily focused Jewish evangelism. And then the second half, roughly, uh, or the second part at least, is the ministry and the mission of Paul on his missionary journeys. And that's chapter 13 to 28. So that is Gentile evangelism. And of course, Paul used as his strategy, uh, being a Jew himself, he would go into the synagogues, he would begin to proclaim the truth, he would get dialogue with the people, he would continue to preach with varying degrees of opposition, and people would get saved and the work would begin. That was his typical pattern. The focus of Acts is on Jesus, the church, 
the Holy Spirit, the Great Commission, and the Kingdom of God. Let me say that again. The focus of Acts is on Jesus, the church, the Holy Spirit, the Great Commission, and the Kingdom of God. So we'll begin reading now in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, and I'm going to go through verse 11. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now verse 9. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching. And a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. And suddenly, two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. There is a very clear and powerful progression of the life, the ministry, and the mission of Jesus in these opening verses. There are short references that bring us into a much longer story. And this much longer story gives us insight into why Jesus came, what he accomplished when he came, and how we're blessed to be a part of his mission and his kingdom. So I want to walk through that progression of the gospel that I think is evident here in these verses. And the first part of it is that Jesus lived and taught. He lived and taught. He said, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke mentions Theophilus, whose name means loved by God. And some people think that he was a patron. And what I mean when I say that some people think that he was a patron, they think that he may have financed the work of writing Luke and Acts. Now, we don't know that certainly from the scriptural record, but the two books would confirm and instruct Theophilus as well as the church. So it wasn't unusual in those days, in ancient times, even similar to what we find today, for an author to dedicate something to another person who was significant to them, either having contributed to the writing itself or having been some type of special support to the person, spiritually, physically, or otherwise, um, as they were doing their work, and in this case, doing the work of the Lord. So some think that that's the reason that Theophilus is mentioned here. The word began indicates that Acts continues the account of the ministry and the teaching that Jesus began on the earth. 
that word is strategically placed. The work of Jesus is divided here into two main categories. The two main categories are what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. So literally it will be translated this way. Jesus began both to do and to teach. That's the emphasis. He had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And he's now giving them, the disciples, the Great Commission. And this Great Commission comes to us as well. I love what Ray Stedman had to say about this years ago. He said, whether in the Gospels or in Acts, God uses incarnation. His life manifested through human life as his strategy to change the world. Stedman says the book of Acts is the record of men and women who are possessed by Jesus Christ as his servants, manifesting his life in every way. And then Stedman concludes the quote with this. Anytime you find a Christianity that is not doing this, it is a false Christianity. I would take that down to an individual level and say anytime that you find a Christian who is not doing this, then it would be a cause for concern as to whether or not they are a genuine believer because this is the outflow of our relationship with God. It's a response to the grace of God to do what he's commanded us to do. So what did Jesus do and teach? Well, we know for sure that he came into the world as God in the flesh. That's part of what Stedman was talking about in the, the incarnation and the power of the incarnation. Um, and he is the son of God. So he came to reveal God to the world. Hebrews chapter 1 makes it clear that God has made himself known in various ways, in various times, in various places, uh, diverse areas. But he has preeminently made himself known through his son Jesus. He is the revelation of God to us, the presence of God among us in the world. And even today, he, he retains the fact that he is 100% God and 100% man, and he is eternally so. And that's significant even as we think about his ascension here in just a moment. Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. Jesus is the embodiment. He's the fulfillment of them all. And I'll tell you what else it does when we understand that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies that are messianic. They give us hope for this reason. There's never been a promise that God has made that he will not keep. God is the ultimate promise keeper. He's the one who can be depended on. And we know that just as he's fulfilled all these other prophecies in the past, everything that God has said that remains unfulfilled will be fulfilled, and you can guarantee it, because God always does what he says he'll do. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, by definition, is the sovereign rule and reign of God over all things. There is an already sense to it, because it's already come, but there is a not yet sense to it because it will be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, there's a simple declaration. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why was the kingdom of God at hand? Because Jesus was at hand. The plan of God was being re realized. And in coming, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. In 
he associated with the people that other people would be repelled by. People far from God. People broken by their past and poor decisions and consequences that have followed. The outcast in society. People who were lonely and felt like they had nobody else who cared. The marginalized. These are the people that Jesus drew near to because Jesus understood that you have to recognize your need to be helped. And if we're caught up in self-righteousness like the religious leaders were caught up in self-righteousness, we're not going to see our need. And Jesus came to people who recognized they had a need in their life. And he came, according to Luke, to seek and to save the lost. In doing so, he secured redemption in his work on the cross. It is finished because Jesus finished the work that he was sent to do. He gave witness to the truth. He said in John 18 and verse 37 that he had come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And there are many other things that Jesus did, but these are at the heart of the mission. Now there's a verse by John in John 21 and 25 that's always fascinated me just a little bit because of the content of that particular verse. So let me share it with you. And there are also many other things that Jesus did which, if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that could be written. John says, listen, Jesus did a lot of things. Like a lot of things. We wrote a lot of them down. There's a consistent record of what he did. He said, but listen, if we wrote it all down, the world could not contain the books for all that Jesus has done. How could that be? Well, he's eternal. He's always been. He was the active agent in creation. There's so many things that unfold in the Bible that Jesus is right in the middle of as the Son of God. And I think that's in part what John is referring to, but he's also speaking of his work on the earth. And his work of redemption is complete, but the work of Jesus on the earth is not finished in terms of the mission and the kingdom until he returns. 1 John 4 and verse 17 says, In this love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence on the judgment day. Listen to this phrase right here. Because as he is, so are we in the world. As Jesus is, so are we in the world. You and I are representatives of Jesus in the world. We're to be as he is in the world the world. So we follow how he lived. We follow how he taught. And we identify our lives with him in every way as he shapes us to be more like him. The second part is that Jesus suffered on the cross and died. You'll note here in verse 3, there are four words. After he had suffered. After he had suffered. The suffering of Jesus is, is well documented in the New Testament. Jesus warned the disciples what to expect. He said in Luke 9 and verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. So here's what I want to I zero in on just for a moment. This thought. He must suffer... He must 
be killed. That's what the scripture says. The suffering of Jesus is not an afterthought. This is, this is God's plan for the ages. This is the sovereign will of God that this would take place for people like us. The idea of the innocent dying for the guilty shows up early in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve received garments of animal skin to cover their shame after they had sinned. Blood was shed in Eden. The Mosaic law indicated that it is blood that makes atonement for one's life in Leviticus 17 and verse 11. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus suffered, and he suffered through his trials, his torture, and his crucifixion. And Isaiah prophesied what the suffering of Jesus would be like. I think about Isaiah 53 where it tells us that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He goes on to speak with detail about what suffering the coming Messiah would experience. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So the suffering of Jesus was multifaceted. The suffering of Jesus certainly was physical. The Jewish leaders had him beaten at his first trial. The Romans stripped him and flogged him and put a crown of thorns on his head and beat him. He was subjected to the humiliation and the physical torture of the cross. But not only was his suffering physical, the suffering of Jesus was spiritual. It was spiritual in the sense that he had the weight of the sins of the world on him. He was bearing the guilt for our sins. The wrath of God was on him. And he died to pay the penalty for our sins. He was dying as the substitution for us in our place. And it was an intense suffering that was physical, spiritual, and it was also emotional. You say, how could it have been emotional? Well, Jesus was rejected in large part by his own people. He's abandoned for the most part by his closest followers. The suffering of Jesus on the cross demonstrates the love of God for us. And, and it cancels the demands of the law against us, not because the law was no longer significant, but because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus did for us in our place what we could not do for ourselves. He came to this earth. He got involved in this fallen world that we're in. He was tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin. He did, and he taught, and then he suffered on the cross and he died. And it was for us. And it was once and for all. You remember when Jesus was crucified, the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was the place where the high priest could only go in once a year to bring a sin offering for the guilt of the people. But that sin offering that he would bring, that sacrifice that he would bring for the atonement, had to be repeated year after year. And it couldn't accomplish what Jesus was able to accomplish once and for all. So when we realize that Jesus suffered on the cross and died, we can begin to understand the, the overwhelming, superabundant grace that God gives to us. That we can be forgiven, we can be right with God, and we can have confidence in our faith. The writer of Hebrews says that we are to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews 4 and verse 16, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. 
And then that brings me to this point. Jesus rose from the dead. Look again now at verse 3. In verse 3, it says, He also presented himself alive to many, or to them, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in that great resurrection passage that centers on the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus gave many convincing proofs that he had been raised. The word proofs occurs only here in the New Testament in this way. And it looks at demonstrable evidence in contrast with evidence that's simply provided by a, a single witness, for example. This is demonstrable evidence. The idea is that this can be proven beyond a doubt or can be show, shown clearly. So the resurrection was proven by touch, by sight, by feel, by hearing. It was multi-sensory in terms of what they experienced and what they saw. For 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples. Luke is the only scriptural writer who tells us that Christ's post-resurrection ministry lasted for that specific time frame. Evidently, Jesus would appear at intervals. He would come, he would go, he would show miraculous signs, he would be in different places in a variety of ways, and he's giving this public overwhelming testimony that he was in fact raised from the dead after being crucified. And the resurrection was at the core of the message that was preached by the disciples. C.S. Lewis put it this way, he said for them, and he's speaking of the apostles, to preach Christianity meant primarily to preach the resurrection. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that's been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of a new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. The resurrection of Jesus is the authentication of all the other miracles in the Bible. I do not think that's an overstatement, so let me say it again. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate validation of all the miracles in the Bible. It is proof that God is the God of the living. And it also guarantees our own resurrection. That when our bodies are returned to the earth, at the end of our lives here on this earth, and our soul goes to be in the immediate presence of God, that that's not the end. There's going to be a resurrection. And because Christ has been raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. Now, on this subject of the kingdom of God, Jesus spoke often about the kingdom of God. In fact, it was of central importance to him. Kingdom is mentioned 126 times in the Gospels and then 34 times in the rest of the New Testament. I already gave you by way of definition that the kingdom of God, and I would also say that the kingdom of heaven is, is synonymous and interchangeable with this, is the sovereign rule and reign of God over all things. God sits as king over all of the universe. The basic meaning of the word kingdom relates to his kingdom rule. It's his reign, it's his actions, it's his lordship, it's his sovereign governance over what he has made. 
And I think we can consider the kingdom in this way. There's a past aspect to it because it's already been inaugurated. There's a present aspect to it because it's been realized in our lives through faith as we follow Jesus and we focus on the king of the kingdom and his rule and reign overall. And then there's a future aspect to it of what God is going to still do and that will end with the eternal aspect of it, that God will do what he said he will do for all of eternity. And Jesus came into the world to establish his saving rule. That's why he taught us to pray, Lord, uh, Father, your kingdom come. Or in Luke 17 and verse 21, it says, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Why was the kingdom of God in the midst of them? Because Jesus was in the midst of them. And it brings peace to our lives, but the kingdom of God also makes us uncomfortable. Now, let me say a little bit more about that. It brings peace because we know what God has accomplished through Jesus, and we're a part of that. We're believers, we're part of his church, part of his work in the world, but it brings an uncomfortable feeling to us because it takes us out of our comfort zone. See, sometimes after we come to know Jesus as our Savior and some time goes along, we start forgetting what it was like to be lost. We start forgetting what it was like to not be a part of the family of God, to not have the confidence and the peace and everything that comes along with that. And as a result of that, we get comfortable and we start thinking that it's about us four and no more. We're here for the holy huddle. Let's just have a good time. And when it's over, it's over. The church exists always to continue to reach other people with the good news about Jesus, to reach people who need to grow in their faith and be discipled who aren't otherwise, to reach people who might be new coming into the area. There's all sorts of reasons, but it's dynamic. There are always people who are leaving this life and graduating to the next and going to be in the presence of the Lord. And there's families that are moving other places because of their vocation or their family or some other life circumstances. There's people that are getting saved and coming in and people that are getting baptized. A church is dynamic. It's never static. It's always moving. It's always being shaped. So the question is, if that's true, and it is, then shouldn't we be shaped by a kingdom mentality and not a selfish one? Shouldn't we be outward focused rather than inward focused? Shouldn't we hold on to things that we're doing in terms of ministry and gathering people? Shouldn't we hold on loosely to that stuff? The obvious answer is yes, because it's about much more than us. It's about what God is doing as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we do that as a priority over the things of the world. And then Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. He promised the Holy Spirit. You'll notice here in verse 4 that he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for the Father's promise. And he said, you've heard me speak about it. And then he said, for John, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So the promise of the Father is the promise of the Holy Spirit. It was John the Baptist who predicted a spirit baptism by the Lord Jesus. Now the word baptized means literally dipped or immersed, but it also carries with it the idea here of uniting with, coming together with. In a spiritual sense, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's what happens in our lives because we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. And that was going to be the significance of Pentecost, which we'll get to soon enough in Acts. 
So when they had come together, they asked, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? I want you to envision the disciples coming together at the Mount of Olives. They're filled with expectation. They know that Jesus has instituted the new covenant and the restoration of the kingdom of Israel would have been a natural part of that in their minds. So it was reasonable to wonder when the rest of the new covenant was going to be fulfilled. Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't even correct them. Their question about the kingdom being restored, however, shows that they were anticipating a political and a territorial kingdom. And Jesus was speaking of and anticipating an eternal spiritual kingdom. Not that it doesn't have physical or territorial implications to it in some of the specific prophecies, but he's talking about something that is eternal, that is far greater than even that. So he says to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father set by his own authority. And then he gives the Great Commission in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus warns them about inquiring about specific aspects of the timing of God's kingdom for the reason that those things belong to to God the Father. What they needed was not speculation about the specifics of timing. What they needed was power for their service to God. What they needed was uh, to be empowered to be a witness for Jesus, to have the strength of the Holy Spirit to do that. And that's what we need today. That's what we desperately need because it's so easy in life and ministry to just go through the motions. We've done this before. We know what to do. We know what questions to answer. We know the spiritual talk. I mean, we can frame it all and look like we are super-duper Christians. But in reality, are we relying on the grace of God and being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work? I think we see the results we see often because we do what we do in our own strength and not in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. There's an interesting outline that goes along with the Great Commission as it relates to the rest of the book of Acts. And I want to point this out here. This is not original to me, but I think it's insightful into what happens in the rest of the book. One commentator said that Acts chapter 1 through 7 describes primarily the gospel in Jerusalem. Then the progression in Acts 8 through 12 is the movement of the gospel in Judea, and Samaria. And then Acts 13 through 28 describes the gospel going to the ends of the earth. So in a sense, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is the foundation for the building and the expansion of the church otherwise and of the gospel specifically as it advances. And we continue on today as a people who are saved by grace, baptized by the Holy Spirit if we're in Christ, And we have a mission to make Jesus known in the world. And then the last part of this narrative is that Jesus ascended into heaven. He ascended into heaven. Verse 9, it says, And after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. The cloud that received him is similar to the cloud of glory. It's similar to the presence of God in the Old and the New Testaments when the Shekinah glory of God is evident. And it says in verse 10, 
While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. The two men were presumably angels, and the disciples were told to put their attention in the right place. And Jesus told them to go to the ends of the earth. He ascends into heaven, and they're standing there looking up. Now, I've read that. I don't know how many times. I know you've read it, too. If you've read your Bible very long at all, you've read this narrative. But I want you to just put yourself in that situation for a moment. Imagine that you are one of the close disciples of Jesus, or maybe even an onlooker, and this is taking place. And he's ascending back into heaven, and, and all of a sudden there's these angels that are there. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of supernatural stuff happening around you. We would be in awe and be amazed. We ought to be in awe and amazed now as we anticipate his return. Because look again at verse 11. In verse 11, it says, This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is an important phrase here. He will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. What does that mean? Well, he left physically, and Jesus will return in the same way. Jesus left visibly, and he will return in the same way. Jesus left from the Mount of Olives, he will return in the same way. Jesus left in the presence of his disciples, and he will return in the same way. And then finally, he left speaking to and blessing his followers, and he will return in the same way. That's what he means. So he's saying, listen, church. Followers of Jesus, don't, don't be discouraged. He's coming back. And today we anticipate. In fact, the Bible says that there is, a, there is a crown reserved in heaven for all who love his appearing. So if we love the appearing of Jesus, we long for the appearing of Jesus, we pray for the appearing of Jesus, then one of the five crowns that are specifically mentioned in the Bible will be given to us because we've honored the king. And it will be for his glory. Are you living your life with a kingdom focus and a sense of anticipation? If you're not, there's a whole lot more for you in the Christian life than what you're probably currently experiencing. Because when you step into the love of God, the grace of God, the power of God, the plan of God for your life, hey, it changes everything. It changes everything. Bow our heads together for a moment as we come to a close of the service. It's been a wonderful time to be here today in worship together. As we've observed baptisms, both services, and as we've prayed and given and encouraged one another and learned from the Word. But now the question is, what are we going to do with what we know? What are we going to do with what Jesus did and what Jesus taught? Are we going to focus ourselves and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? If you don't know him today, the starting point is repentance and faith. You say, Pastor, I'm not a Christian. I've never been saved. But I want to be. I want to be forgiven. I want to receive the gift of eternal life. You can let the Lord know that right now. Based on what Jesus has done in his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. And you can turn and place your faith and trust in him and ask God to forgive you and save you. 
And then as Christians, maybe, maybe God needs to search our hearts a little bit and help us to ask whether or not we are living with a kingdom first focus, with a Jesus first focus. If we're not, it's not something that we're to be guilty about or to have a heavy burden laid on us, but it's a, certainly a, an encouragement for us to step into the power of God and surrender and see what he might do with us and through us. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We turn this time of closing response over to you. There are decisions that need to be made. I pray that people would come, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.